I think we would all agree that there are times when we fail to see uh, the warning signs for what is about to happen. On April the 18th, 1983, the U.S. Embassy in Beirut, Lebanon, was bombed and 63 people were killed. The Islamic Jihad claimed responsibility. On October the 23rd, 1983, the Marine barracks in Lebanon were bombed, killing 24 Americans and 58 French troops. Again, the Islamic Jihad claimed responsibility. I remember that day well. I was on a ship in the Mediterranean Ocean when that took place. On March 16, 1984, the Islamic Jihad kidnapped and later murdered political officer William Buckley. On February the 26, 1993, the World Trade Center in New York was bombed, killing six and injuring 1,000. On August the 7th, 1998, uh, the U.S. Embassy in East Africa was bombed, killing 12 U.S. citizens. Citizens, excuse me, 32 foreign service nationals and 247 Kenyan citizens. Almost simultaneously, a bomb went off outside the U.S. Embassy in Tanzania, killing 10 people. The U.S. government held Osama bin Laden responsible. On October the 12th, 2000, the USS Cole, an American ship, was attacked killing 17 U.S. soldiers. Supporters of Osama bin Laden once again were suspected. All of these incidents uh, were warnings. Anticipations of what took place on September the 11th, 2001. Almost everyone, looking back, admits that but no one saw what was coming from these warnings. The trumpet judgments in Revelation serve as a warning of the judgment that is to come. Just like these instances I've read you, we fail at times to see the obvious. If you're looking at your handout... You see, the main idea here is that God judges unbelievers for their rebellion. I know this is, this is a solemn chapter in the book of the Revelation. It's, it's a very difficult chapter. God judges unbelievers for their rebellion by allowing Satan and his demons to inflict punishment upon them. God judges unbelievers... For the rebellion by allowing Satan and his demons to inflict punishment upon them. Why why is chapter 9 in the Bible? Uh, I've ran across a particular commentator which I've grown to to really appreciate. Uh, Almost in every commentary he writes, he, he does these things. Why is this chapter in the Bible? We often ask that question, in particular one like this. Why is this here? He gives some needs based on why this chapter is in the Bible. Having read the Bible as a whole and seeing God and His character and His holiness and seeing us, there's a need here for this chapter. 
He says, we have a great need to see sin for what it is. The sins that tempt us are not things for us to enjoy. Instead, they are traps set by Satan. We need to recognize sin for what it is and be convinced that God's commands are good for us. God is not being mean to us by saying, do these things and do them this way. And we need to understand that sin will not benefit us. We also need to understand that God is holy and that He will for sure judge sin. We need to understand that God alone through Jesus can save people from that judgment. That's why chapter 9 of the book of the Revelation is is in the Bible. Uh, Revelation chapter 8, as we looked at last week, verse 13, ended with the announcement of these three woes that was to come. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, John then describes what happens when the fifth trumpet is blown. So if you're looking at your handout, you have this first woe, the fifth trumpet, and that's contained within verses 1 through 12. So we just kind of simply outlined it. The first woe, uh, the fifth trumpet. Verse 1 says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star falling from heaven to earth, and he was given... That's... I was going to say that's a key, but no pun intended... He's given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. John sees a star that had fallen from heaven. Notice that this star, this is important now, don't miss this. This is how important words are in the Bible that we miss sometimes. Notice that this star is a he and not an it. You see that? I'm sure there are times, if you're like me, you've read that and you've totally missed. It's a he and not an it. So the question would be, who is... The star, right? Who is he? This star symbolizes Satan. That's who this star symbolizes. Now, a follow-up question will be, how so? All right, I'm going to try to give you some things to try to substantiate that argument. Number one, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says to to his disciples, I saw Satan falling like lightning, or more literally, like a star from heaven. Second, this star, he's identified in verse 11 as the king of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. Apollyon is Hebrew for destruction. And Apollyon is Greek for destroyer. No one else in the Bible gets those titles other than Satan. Third, in chapter 12... Verse 9, which we haven't gotten to yet. In chapter 12, verse 9, we read that Satan, the dragon, was thrown down out of heaven to earth. Just as this star here has been. Combining those seems to make for a good reason to say that this fallen star is a figurative description for Satan himself. So that's who this star is. And notice he, the fallen star, was given. He was given the key to the shaft of this bottomless pit. Uh, that's another, if you'll remember, we, we talked about this in previous uh, uh, chapters going through the book of the Revelation. This is another divine passive. In other words, he receives permission. He gets this key to this bottomless pit to open it from God. God allows Satan 
to do this. He gives him this key to this bottomless pit. And look at verse 2. This key was given to him. And what does this key do? It permits him to open that bottomless pit. And doing so, releases from this pit this this dirty black smoke. And it says like the smoke of a great furnace. And notice the results of that in verse 2. The sun and the air were what? Darkened. And then, verse 3, Out of the smoke come locusts on the earth, and the locusts, there again, notice, were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. We'll see as we go through here that these scorpions inflict suffering on men. I think, and again... I just went to setting one day and this just kind of popped in my mind. It's from studying and uh, others who are far smarter than me studying the Scriptures. I see these locusts as a figurative description for demons. So you have Satan, the star, and these locusts are a figurative description for the demons. Satan and his demons. And here's why uh, I would say that. They come from the bottomless pit. And in, in, and in the Greek, the word for bottomless pit is the word abyss, which is the dwelling place of demons. The realm of the demons. It's where the, the demons hang out, if you will. Second, I don't think they can be literal locusts because in verses 4 and 5 we read that they don't harm plants, but they harm who? People. Where do locusts harm? Plants. These locusts don't harm plants, but they harm people. Thirdly, I think that they can't be literal locusts because in verse 11 it says they have no king over them. If you read Proverbs chapter 30 verse 27, it says the natural locusts have no king. Verse 11 says they have a king. Natural locusts, according to Proverbs 30 verse 27, has no king. So you you put all this together and it seems best to understand that this, this swarm of locusts is figurative for a group of demons that are unleashed by Satan himself. In other words, God gives permission to Satan to carry out his evil plan. By his evil plan, I mean Satan's evil plan. God permits Satan and his demons to inflict emotional and, as we'll see, physical torment on unbelievers as punishment for their rebellion against him. God uses... He's not responsible for, listen, He's not responsible for, he, he allows, He uses the work of Satan as punishment and as a warning for the earth dwellers to repent. Why do I say that? Because when we get to the end of the chapter, what do the earth dwellers refuse to do? Repent. This is a warning to them. Here's what's happening in this world now, and here's what's ultimately going to come to those who rebel against me. And still people refuse to what? Repent and turn from their sin and turn to God. In verse 4 it says, They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. These, these locusts, these, these figurative, uh, are figurative for demons. They don't harm plants again, but they harm people. And it's a specific people that they harm. Notice what it says. Only those who do not have the seal of God. That's who they're going to harm. Those people who don't have the seal of God. That wording there, seal on their foreheads, we've heard that before, right? Go back to chapter 7, verse 3. 
If you were to look there, it says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Chapter 9 and chapter 7 both mention not harming the earth and trees. And and both these texts mention the seal of God on the forehead. Revelation chapter 7 verse 3 seals the saint. And chapter 9 verse 4 states that those who don't have the seal will be harmed by these uh, scorpion-like locusts, these demons. Here's what we need to understand. Revelation chapter 9 shows us that we definitely want the seal of God on our foreheads. We want that. Here's my question for you. Do you have that seal of God on your forehead? You're thinking, woman, I looked in the mirror this morning, I didn't have anything on my forehead. Well, it's not a literal seal. If it's not a literal seal, then what is it? In chapter uh, 7, verse 3, it says God's servants. That's key. God's servants are the ones who are sealed. And in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, God's servants, again, are those who have been freed from their sin by the blood of Jesus and made into a kingdom and priests. That's who the sealed are. Do you have that seal? Sitting here today, do you you have that seal? Have you been freed from your sin by the blood of Jesus? If you do, then you have that seal upon you. Do you you believe in the shed blood of Jesus on the cross to free you from the penalty due your sin? Do you you have that? Have Have you been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus? And here's the question. Is Jesus your king? Are you serving him? As it says in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, are you serving Him as a priest? Now you remember going, well, last I checked, my credentials didn't call on me or didn't allow me to be a priest. Well, here's what a priest is representative of. Here's what that means. A priest worships God, right? That's what priests did in the Old Testament. They worship God. And in the book of 1 Peter, it says that you and I are priests of the living God. Everyone who's been sealed is a priest. A priest worships God, and here's what he does. He worships God, and he mediates the knowledge of God to others. Here's the question. Is that what your life looks like? Is someone who has the seal of God on them? Are you a priest? Are you one who's worshiping God? That's evidence of having been sealed, of having believed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a priest. You're someone who worships God and you, you do your best. You have a desire and a longing to take that knowledge of God to others. That's a very important thing to have in our minds as we're studying chapter 9 here. Is that what your life looks like? When the judgments of God begin to fall, listen, you want this seal. You want this seal. And here's what I would say to you. If you're sitting here today, if you're afraid you don't have that, then I'd call on you to repent and confess your sins to God right now and turn from them and believe in Jesus. That's what you need to do. There is no other answer to that. In verses 5 and 6, notice these demons cause intense mental or emotional suffering. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. 
And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Notice the torment that these demons are allowed to inflict makes people what? Makes them want to die in verse 6. This suggests some type of mental, emotional, even a spiritual suffering. Some see in verses 2 and 3 that the smoke, they're darkening the air. This is all figurative. This is all representative of uh, 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 something here. The smoke darkening the air when the locusts are released uh, suggests spiritual darkness and the blindness that surrounds unbelieving humanity. That's what it's representative of. So notice that God allows these demons to torment for how long? Five months. Again, this would suggest that these are not real locusts because five months is way longer than a locust needs to wipe out the plants, right? They can do that in just a matter of what? Hours or a day. Locusts normally strip vegetation and they just move on, but not these. They come and they strip away peace and hope and produce fear and despair that lingers and goes on for five months. Whether this is a literal five months or it's just figurative for an extended period of time, regardless, five months when you're suffering is what? That's a long time, right? I stump my toe and five minutes is a long time for that thing to throb, right? But this is not just a physical stuff. This is a mental anguish and a spiritual darkness that prevails over the unbelieving people. Verses 7 and 12 elaborate on the awful mental and emotional and spiritual suffering. In verses 1 and 6, excuse me. These verses give a, a physical description. Verses 7 and 12 give a physical description of these locusts. Now pay attention to the repetition of the word like. Okay? In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle, and their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, their faces were like human faces, and their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise—excuse me noise of their wings were like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a, a excuse me, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his name is Apollyon. That word like lets us know that we're looking at symbolic language here. Verses 7 through 11 are figuratively describing the terrifying, awful, demonic forces that are unleashed upon the earth. This is figurative language to tell you how intense this is going to be. And this description also seems to be Satan's way of imitating and perverting what God does. If you read the Scriptures, particularly the book of Revelation, Satan is always imitating God, but just in the opposite direction. These awful scorpion-like locusts seem to be uh, perverted imitations of, um, I think, the living creatures of God. Remember in chapter 4, around the throne, we see one like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, and one like an eagle. 
But here's the difference. While those creatures at God's throne reflect the character of God, these scorpion-like locusts reflect the character of Satan. The best that Satan can do, here's the point, the best that Satan can do is to twist something good that God created. That's the way Satan tempts us. He takes something good and he twists that and turns it into sin. Everything that tempts us is a twisted, perverted, satanic corruption of something that God meant for us to enjoy. The purpose of Satan here and his demons is to deceive and wound those who do not have God's seal on them. The unsaved people of the world. We've, we, we may find Satan's temptation so appealing and so enticing and so convincing. That's part of the way Satan lures us in. Then he uses those things to do what? Destroy people's life and bring suffering and misery upon them. And guess what? That's God allowing him to do that because that's God's judgment on you. Do you understand that? Sin, pursuing things that God give us and turning them into sin, God letting us go that way is His judgment on us. One commentator says this, Demonic deception is real and alluring and enticing and fascinating. Fun, even. And there are And there are few torments more piercing, more like the scorpion sting, than the realization of the bankruptcy and the misery into which such seductive sin leads us. Let me me ask you this. Has our world, America in particular, not that we're the only ones, but America in particular, Have we not gone completely insane out of our mind when it comes to sex? Don't worry, mamas and daddies, you don't have to cover up your little one's ears. I'm not going to. But we have lost our minds when it comes to that. Adultery, homosexual sin, child pornography, sex trafficking. You see how miserable we've taken something good and and believe Satan, and he's turned that into something miserable, and it's destroying. It's killing. And God's allowing that to happen because of our rebellion against Him. Almost every new TV show or commercial has some representation of sex which is outside of God's design. There are a lot of new shows coming on now, and I've watched most of them. And in each and every single one of them, about the fourth or fifth episode, boom, there it is. It's like they've got you hooked and watching this, and all of a sudden, there it is. There's one recently come on. I I was enjoying it until this happened. Uh, There's a particular show called SWAT, and they have a a female on there, which is, man, she can get it done. And she is not married, and she's bisexual. And in the last episode... She entered into a relationship with a married man and a woman. Listen to me. People will tell us about all this transgender and all this other stuff. That this, this is not going to hurt us. Do you see that shows are... That's telling us that this is going to lead people down a... Do you see how... It's not just homosexual... Male and male, female and female. This has turned into something so much worse than we could ever imagine. 
What's the old saying? You give someone an inch and they'll take a mile. We are that kind of people. That's who we are. Here's what I would say, and I think you know this. Sex is only permissible between a man and a woman within marriage. That's God's design. Outside of that, it's wrong. It's sin. Another commentator says, You may believe that living in obedience to God's commandments is the enemy of your pleasure and the theft of your joy. But the message of Revelation 9, the warning call of God that will begin to sound in your experience is that the further you wander from life on God's terms, the more you choose the pleasures of the world, the further into the grip of the star who fell from heaven and the locust He deploys on your torment, the further you will fall. That's what's going on here. The further men rebel and go away from God, that's God's judgment. God's allowing that judgment to come on Him and He's using Satan and His demons to bring judgment. And here's what I would say. You're saying, well, I'm a Christian. And praise the Lord for that. You're saying, boy, I'm not there. But here's the way we need to look at this. We must fight the lure of temptation by trusting that God's means for us to enjoy the real thing is His way and His time. We've got to fight that lure of temptation that the world says, oh, those people you go to church with, your grandma and your grandpa, your mom and daddy, they've lost their mind. You just need to do it and enjoy it. Young people, I think this goes without saying. Are you listening to me? Sex is for when you get married and no other time. Cut and dry, that's God's design. That's simple, right? Verse 12 tells us, The first woe is past, and behold, two woes are still to come. The second woe begins in uh, verse 13. You see there the second woe, the sixth trumpet. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Notice here that, that this voice comes from the altar before God again ties these judgments to God Himself. God's allowing these judgments to come. He's using Satan and his demons to do them. And the voice continues in verse 14, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. I think these verses overlap quite a bit with what we saw in the first part of chapter 6. I think the sixth trumpet describes the physical suffering God allows on demons uh, or allows demons to inflict on unbelievers, particularly as a result of war. I, I think this because when these four angels are released, they are released, verse 15, so they could, what? Kill a third of mankind? There's, there's physical suffering as a result of war. Notice also in verse 14, these evil angels are said to come from the great river Euphrates. We read that and we're like, okay, they come from the great river Euphrates. Well, this is here for a reason. It points us to the Old Testament where the Euphrates River was an area from which the armies of Assyria and Babylon come. It's a clue of what sort of judgment we're about to see in these following verses. That's a clue to us. Here's what you're about to see. Notice as well in verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. These angels being prepared for the exact time 
is seen by the four references there. Hour, day, month, and year, which points to God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over all this. In other words, these events are taking place exactly when God has appointed them to take place. The release of these appointed evil angels in verses 13 to 15 opens the way for this enormous army we see in verses 16 through 19. Um, in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, we read of a locust plague. Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verse 38. We read of a locust plague, which is then referred to as a human army. When you get to verses 49 through 68, the same thing happens in the Old Testament book of Joel. In uh, Joel chapter 1, the lo- there are locusts there, and then in chapter 2, it's switched and they are an army. Those judgments there are a type of what happens here in Revelation chapter 9, where we see these locusts in verses 3 to 11, and now seem to be this. Vast army in verses 13 through 19. Notice there the army is numbered in verse 16. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. This is 20,000 ten-thousands. In other words, 200 million. You look at the description in verses 17 through 19. Again, this is all figurative in order to to grab our attention to show us the intensity of this. The horses have breastplates. Their heads are like lion's heads. Fire and smoke and sulfur come from their, uh, their mouths. Verse 18, killing a third of mankind. Verse 19, their tails are serpents with heads that wound. That sounds very much like the description of the swarm of that, that demonic locust back in 7 to 11. The similarities there are, are very striking, even if the description is not exact. It's talking about the same thing. The demons of verses 13 through 15 are the ones who, who provoke human armies to go to war. That's what Satan does and his demons. They deceive human armies to fight against one another as part of God's punishment upon evildoers. You think about it. There are a lot of just wars. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of reasons to go to war, and we have done some of those. But think of how many unjust wars evil men have brought on throughout history. Think about it. All to the delight of Satan and his demons. And think of all those who have died and suffered as a result of war. Soldiers and civilians. Think of the the thousands and millions of people who have died. Here we learn that one of God's purposes in this is judgment on unbelievers for their sins. When we were in chapter 6, uh, we said that believers suffer. And they suffer from the results of a war as well. No one gets a pass there. Everybody's affected that. But they do not suffer in the same way as unbelievers do. And I think I said this when we were in chapter 6. We are part of the suffering that takes place, right? We, we don't get a pass. We don't, we don't get left out in a lot of cases. But the suffering of a, of a believer is used by God to purify us and sanctify us. While the unbeliever's suffering has no redemptive purpose on them whatsoever. 
And it's this sort of non-redemptive suffering on unbelievers that's in view here in these verses. They suffer, they die, and they have no hope. But believer, if you're caught up in this and you suffer, you die, you have hope. God takes that suffering that you're in, whatever it is, ever how intense it is, He uses it to transform and sanctify and purify your life. And then when you die, you have eternal life. But these unbelievers, they're in torment because they die in their sin and their rebellion against God and they are forever away from the presence of God. Now, I think I've told you two or three times, man, we could spend days on chapter 9 turning over every rock. But the point is here that God uses Satan and his demons to, to judge unbelievers. Now, this is a warning. Remember the, how I did the introduction? All these warnings that were out there and then boom, the day come and now we can look back and go, oh, we should have saw that. Here's Revelation chapter 9 saying, unbelievers, you need to look at this. And Christians, you need to look at this and be telling the unbelievers, look at this. This warning is coming from God. And again, I, I, I could go into detail after detail after detail here, but the main thing is... God uses Satan and his demons to judge unbelievers. Now, you would think, in reading this, you would think that judgments as bad as these first six trumpets, you would think, right, that they would get the attention of unbelievers. You would think, right? Good Lord, how much more does it take? It would get their attention and lead them to repent of their sins, right? But if we look at verses 20 and 21, it shows just the opposite. The unrepentant. Keep in mind here that these, these judgments are real, but they're limited. Total, complete, final judgment is not yet permitted. Okay? Why not? These judgments are the judgments of God. They're limited they're not total, complete, final judgment. And at the end of these uh, uh, seven uh, trumpets or seven seals, trumpets and bowls, we'll see at the end of those, we see this final, ultimate judgment that God brings. But in between, there are these judgments that are being poured out now. They're limited. They're not the final judgment. And we need to keep that in mind. They're limited. Total, complete, final judgment has not come. And here's another question we were to ask. Why not? Look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, and here's the heartbreak of all this, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Verse 21. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. See, God's purpose in all of this is to give the opportunity to repent. That's what He's calling on. Repent. The judgments are being played out in His providence across human history in order to call, in order to sound the alarm, to turn back before it's too late. 
That's, that's the design of all this suffering and everything that goes in the world that God allows Satan and his demons to bring out. is to get our attention, to call the unbeliever to repent. This is limited, but one day it's going to come. The hammer's going to drop. God in His providence allows natural disasters, everything from the Zika virus to hurricanes. When He allows Satan to deceive the world and torment people with unfulfilled promises and unattainable pleasures, when in His providence war and violence fill our world, even sometimes in our own backyard, right? 9-11. You realize in 2018 there were 307 mass shootings in the United States. Not the world, but in the United States. In response to these six trumpets, Humanity continues in unrepentant sin. Despite having their resources taken away, their minds tormented by demons, many lose their lives to demon-caused, Satan-caused war, and those who don't still refuse to repent and find mercy in God. This shows us how blind and hard and fallen the human heart is. It's only by a divine work of grace that they can be changed through Christ. God brings the dead to life and transfers people from the domain of darkness into the domain of His beloved Son. God judges unbelievers for their rebellion by allowing Satan and his demons to inflict punishment upon them. That's what's going on here. That's the, the main idea that's going on here. There's a lot more in there, but that's the main idea. God judges because of His holiness, but He also intends His judgment to draw lost people to repent. Everything we see going on wicked in the world is God saying, look, one day the hammer will drop. You need to repent and come now. Here's what I want to say. Finishing here. Non-Christian. If you refuse to repent and trust in Jesus, if you refuse to worship God and obey Him, you choose death rather than life, guilt rather than peace, and hell over heaven. What is God's purpose for these trumpets in chapter 9? It's to call you non-Christian to wake up and to hear the warnings. That's the purpose of chapter 9. Wake up! Wake up, lost person. One day, the final end, complete total judgment is going to come. But now I'm warning you. You know, I was thinking this week. What do you do when you hear the fire alarm? When you hear that police siren? If you're like me, you're thinking, well, I've got to pull into sheets now. He just scared the daylights out of me. I've got to pull in here, collect myself. What do you do when you hear the fire alarm, the police siren, the tornado warning? What do you do when you hear them? You run from the burning building. You pull over. Or you take cover and you run for protection, right? What chapter 9 is doing. The judgments are now limited and temporary, but final, eternal judgment is on the way. God's Word says it, and God upholds His Word. Let me ask you, Christian, 
What will you and I do with this chapter of the Bible? You're going, I'm glad I'm saved. That's what most of us do, right? Man, I'm glad I'm saved. Praise the Lord. Let me urge you, Christian, to use this chapter as a believer to fight against sin in your own life. Let chapter 9 call you away from Satan's deception to what appear to be pleasing things. Let it call you to obedience to God and His Word. As Christians, let chapter 9 cause us to not envy the evil choices that unbelievers make. Let's not desire their sins. Let's not gaze on their idols. Let's love God and let's love our neighbors. Let chapter 9 call us to faithfully share the gospel and pray that God rescues His enemies and makes them His redeemed, set-free people. That's what chapter 9 ought to do for us. God, help me to be faithful to unbelievers. Your judgment is coming one day and they have no hope outside the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember last Sunday, what did I challenge you? Who's your one? This year, you find one person Don't find them in November. Find them now and begin praying. God help me. God help me with this unbeliever. Guess what? That one you choose, that one you write down and begin to pray for, they're here in chapter 9. You need to be praying for them. God giving you opportunities to reach them for the gospel. If not you, on average, most people who come to Christ, the result, the research says it takes seven times for them to hear the gospel before they get saved. I think back on my own life, and I'm kind of like, yeah, probably seven plus a few. But see, every time somebody shared it, God stored that up in my heart until one day, boom, somebody else come along, and that was all it took. Who's your one, church? Who's your one believer today? Let's pray.